Hi, I'm Caleb. And I'm Daniel. And this is the Ancient Bible Podcast. So you got a book. I did get a book. I got Linguistics and Biblical Exegesis. Edited by... Josh Westbury, and I can't remember the other guy's name. Doug Magnum. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, sideburns. <laughs> I read He's... the first two chapters this morning, actually. Oh yeah, who's the? I, I don't have it on me. That's at my office. What? Who? Who are the first two? Two chapters. Wendy something or other. Um. Starts with a. I think her last name starts with a W. Also. Wendy Witter. There you go. And it was all introductory stuff, but it's really good, like, summary info. So someone who doesn't want to go through the legwork of, like, learning linguistics could pick this up and understand kind of what's going on and why it's important. Yeah, Wendy Witter uh, is uh, also uh, did her PhD work in South Africa, but at, at Free State, uh, I believe under uh, Cynthia Miller Nadia. Uh, and and probably also I, mean, I haven't 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 read her dissertation or anything, but uh, but but she comes from that uh, that South African academia Hebrew Bible studies that is uh, there's good stuff at Stellenbosch and there's really good stuff at Free State and there's uh, there's a good department also at the Pochfestroom if I'm pronouncing that properly and I'm probably not. But uh, that uh, the Afrikaner words are hard. I'll have but, to ask my wife. Yeah, and I believe now she is uh, she's working for Logos, or at least she was. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure if they still how many of their in-house scholars they still have, because like you know, a bunch of those folks are are doing other things now. Okay. But uh, but yeah. Uh, so what was her article on? The first two are just kind of summary info, you know, the basics of linguistics. Here's what phonology is. Here's what morphology is. And then some good, like, brief summaries on how that relates to biblical studies. Uh, yeah, and so they're just introductory, but I think they're good summary things so that, you know, nobody wants to pick up a full-on linguistics textbook and just, oh, hey, I'm going to learn this now. And unless you're taking it for a class, obviously, but this makes it so that you don't really have to do that if you're just using it to kind of start digging around a little deeper in what the Bible's saying. And uh, what was the second chapter on? Same stuff. It's just more of it. I think it's her... Oh, she did two of them? She did the first two? Yeah, I think there's two by each person. Because there's two by Mike Aubrey on Greek stuff, too. Yeah, I jumped straight to the last two. I think Mike's at the very end, and I was reading his stuff because we was was whispering back and forth during a session and disturbing folks. (laughs) Somebody was like, excuse me, fellas, can you keep it down? And I was like, hey, this is my boy here. I only get to see him like once a year. (laughs) So, no, we're going to talk. Yeah, well, I guess we need to just keep it down. But, yeah, I was reading his stuff, but I haven't read the others. And I think, actually, one of my coworkers grabbed that book up at the office. So when I get up there, 
might be on somebody's desk. I might have to arm wrestle them for it. <laughs> I think it's helpful. Well, that's enough commercial for them. There's our intro. So what did you eat for your Christmas dinner? We had beef tenderloin. That's our family tradition. Oh, very fancy. Yeah, and Christmas morning I had a pork tamale with eggs on it. All right, we had tamales at dinner with uh, turkey and dressing. Yes. All together at once. And, uh, you know, the green bean casserole and all that stuff. Yeah. And the kids had mac and cheese. Yeah. All right. Well, you want to read Psalm 137? Or do you just want to talk about the last verse? <laughs> no, we can hold off and, and we'll give a little... That that bit at the beginning can just be a teaser for what might come later when we actually get to that verse. Al-Nahilrot, Babel, Sham, Yeshavnu, Gam, Pachinu, Bezach, Renu. These are words I've never seen before. Yeah, you have. Etzion. Yeah, cool. Are there any verbs we need to parse so we can understand what's going on? Does anything strike you as a verb? Yeah, the... Yeshavnu. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is? Uh, it's Cal, perfect. Uh, first person, plural. Yeah, first person, common, plural. Yeah. From uh, Yeshav. Yeshav. And we know Yeshav from Psalm 133, but we normally uh, get the, uh, we're used to the infinitive construct form, Shevet. Okay. So here, this is to sit or to, to dwell, you know, and in, actually in Psalm 133, we translated this party, or at least the uh, the twins do in the song that 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 we use but uh we'll see we need to look at the context here before we start thinking of that but but at least morphologically now we know what we're looking at so that that yod out front should not confuse people that it might be an imperfect that's actually the first consonant of the root oh yes okay correct right okay any others yeah the bahinu yeah, this is a nice thing about the poetry is that even if this uh, verb is unfa- as as a vocabulary word, if this verb is unfamiliar to you, you just parsed one of the verbs, and you know uh, it's a it's a it's a one cp verb, and you can see another one cp ending here, and that might make it easy to spot, especially when you're dealing with stuff at the front that. You know, sometimes you see a yod, you might think it's an imperfect. You know, you see a bait, and you might think it's a preposition, but that kind of thing can be helpful. Okay. Just thinking about what you already know. So, yeah, so this is a Cal Perfect 1CP from... My parsing software says Baja. Right, and we could actually, man, I left my BHRG at the office too. Or did I? So third hey verbs is section 18.5, starts on page 115, and we can see 
They use the verb gala, reveal, as the paradigm verb here. And we see gala, cal perfect 3 ms, exactly what you'd expect. And then if you go down to the 1CP, 1CP, you see that the hay has gotten the hay out of there. And now there's a yod indicating that the vowel before it is going to be some kind of, uh, in this case, it's a, it's a hyric yod. But this is a... If, you, if you're thinking about why the vowels are the way they are and why the consonants uh, exist in, in the ways they exist, we have to remember there was a time before the vowel markers. And so yo did not just signify what we would think of as a Y consonantal sound. It would also give you an indication of the kind of vowel that's, that's going to come before it. And generally you're looking at hyric yodes or seri yodes. And here... Uh, taking the place of a hey, we get a hyric yode pretty consistently. That's also what we're looking at here in Psalm 137, verse 1. Bahinu. Okay. Makes sense. Yep. Any other verbs? Uh, yeah, Zakar, so then... That one is an infinitive construct. Yeah, just thinking about what stuff is. Like, if something is a steering wheel, it's not going to... Like, a steering wheel and a wheel are both wheels. But if you put a steering wheel where the tire goes, that's ridiculous, right? <laughs> right? Right. Okay, well, uh, infinitive and a... Let's you know, and a cal infinitive and a cal perfect are both verbs. But if you put some stuff on a perfect that you would have put on an infinitive, it's going to look ridiculous. So the reason why you can put a preposition on an infinitive, as we see here, is because it fun it's a verbal noun, and here it's functioning as a noun, and so you can put a preposition on it. You don't put prepositions on finite verbs. That's ridiculous. Like you're not. That's not how it works. <laughs> so, and that's it, because the rest is... Yeah, but let's finish. So we have a preposition bait plus an infinitive construct form of zakhar, and then we have a 1cp suffix enu. So it is in... And not he remembered or they remembered, but the idea of remembering, or maybe we would say memory in English, and our, us, 1CP, right? Okay. But we need to look at what's typical for prepositions plus infinitives. So if I'm looking at BHRG in the table of contents, I want to find a syntax and semantic section on the infinitive. Oh, I look in 20.1.2 as part of the subject of a nominal clause, point three as part of a predicate, point four part of an adjunct. And then we get to 20.1.4.2 adjunct of time. 
The construction reflects the moment in time at which the event indicated by the finite verb occur. The specific moment in time proposed here is indicated inter alia by the preposition used. Oh, 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 score number one when used with the preposition bait. 20, 0 0.1, 0 0.4, 0 0.2. I'm on page 175. When used with the preposition bait, the action depicted by the infinitive construct is simultaneous with that of the main clause. One more time, when used with the preposition bait, the action depicted by the infinitive construct is simultaneous with that of the main clause. It is simultaneous in the sense that re the action referred to by the bait plus infinitive construction constitutes a stretch of time within which the action in the main clause takes place. This can, construction can be translated as when or while. When. They give an example from 1 Samuel 10 verse 2. When you depart from me. And there it is. Belektach. That was terrible. You better edit that out. Belektach. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was trying to speak Klingon there for a second. Almost. I, that's what I was thinking. Belektach. When you depart. So when we remembered. Yeah, probably something like that. And then if I go also to the bait section, 39.6, this is number two, indicates a temporal frame. And it specifically says here the preposition bait plus infinitive construct often refers to events that provide the temporal frame of an event or events referred to in a subsequent sentence. And then they also down here uh, compare and contrast to the preposition cough plus infinitive. But they also give the same example down here of 1 Samuel 10 verse 2 of when. So let's put the whole thing together. Uh, do you want me to start up at the top here? Yeah. So Al Naharot is by the rivers, or you can, I guess since it's Bab Babylon, it's going to be the rivers, right? Right. Okay, so Sham is there, and then we wept, or we sat, sorry. Um, the only thing that I think we should look at, and this is more of some contextual information one has to have is Naharot here is not necessarily rivers in the way that we think of rivers. These are likely canals. It's a little more like waters. Yeah, these are more like waterways. Like these are man-made waterways uh, that are, that serve, diff you know, uh, serve, serve different purposes for, the the Babylonian construction there. I'm looking at Allen's commentary. Allen says, apart from the rivers, Euphrates and Tigris and their tributaries, there was an, also an intricate canal system intersecting the southern Babylonian plain. It was constructed to provide artificial irrigation for grain fields and date orchards, and also transportation of these crops or other goods in the case uh, of larger watercourses. One of the canals was the Kebar Canal, 
which is mentioned in Ezekiel 1, yeah. uh, in the vicinity of Nippur. Various groups of exiled nationals, including Judeans, were settled in a Neo-Babylonian program to rehabilitate the area after its devastation with the wars with Assyria in the 7th century B.C. Uh, Siebold envisioned a settlement of Levitical singers, for which one may compare the settlement for Levites and temple servants at Kasaphia, according to Ezra 8.15. Through 20. In verse 2, sorry we're jumping ahead a little here, but Alan writes in verse 2, the pop the populous Euphratica, or the Euphrates poplar, is in view. It looks more like a willow than a true poplar, according to okay, so that but I guess that's it about the canals. But they had uh, an intricate system of canals, and an older scholar named Siebold, um, which Alan is following here, described a time when there was a group of different exile, you know, exiles from different nations, which included Judeans, and they were put in this area uh, to rehabilitate the area and bring it back. And it had a bunch of canals. So we might translate this something like canals or waterways or something to indicate that this is man-made. Okay. So rivers, even though Nahar kind of does mean river at times, it's being used poetically. Well, I don't think it's it's necessarily po- poetically. I think it's it's simply you have a word in a language and you're going to fit it to a context. And when you start using frequently used words in new contexts that's how meaning comes to be changed over time so we might actually argue that this is a step in grammaticalization uh, that now with the the group of hebrew singers or these these judean singers who are now singing a song over here they are using their word for moving water uh, to talk about a man-made moving moving thing of water. And I don't think uh, also that uh, in biblical Hebrew, I mean, like even in in places in Israel when it's used, it doesn't always necessarily mean like a natural river. It's just uh, it it often is used for for natural rivers, but it can also be used for things that are not necessarily a natural river. Okay. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily because it's poetry. I think if this was narrative, you would still call them the Naharot Bavel. Okay. Um, but you would just know that looking at it, uh, these are probably canals if we're actually looking at the situation. So then that also maybe you, one person might ask, well, what if they were actually looking at the Euphrates or the Tigris or were some of the tributaries coming off of it? Would they also call those Naharot? Uh, probably, I think. Um, I, I do know that in the Bible, whenever they want to talk about the Euphrates and the Tigris, those have specific names that are mentioned in the Bible. So if, uh, if, if a biblical writer wanted to write those names specifically, that's not hard. But 
there's evidence that maybe we should consider this to be canals of Babylon than necessarily rivers of Babylon. Okay. So you said there we sat and also wept. We wept. Yeah. As we remembered or when we remembered. Yes. Zion. When we remembered Zion. All right. Verse 2. Al Aravim Betocha Talinu Kinorotenu. Wow. Sound like an amateur there, man. I haven't done this in a while. <laughs> Al Aravim Betocha Talinu Kinorotenu. Let's see. Are there verbs I need to parse? I see another. New ending, and I see a hierarchy before it, so I might go ahead and guess that this is going to be another third position. Hey, and that would make it tala, so that would be something like hang, we hung, and then I see another a new, but I don't want to, I don't want to be tricked here. This last one's a noun, and we'll have to talk about it when we get there. It's not one. That I'm too familiar with, so I'll definitely have to use Hallett to help me there, because that's not a that's not a vocabulary word right off the top, off the top of most folks' heads. But from the beginning, we've got the Al Aravin, and we already saw Alan said we were going to talk about the poplars here, and this is what he's talking about: Arava, singular form. Commonly, the willow tree, says Hallett. And uh, we know from Alan that this is the Euphrates poplar. And we say in her midst. So on the poplars in her midst. And the question there is who's the her? Babylon. Yeah, specifically the Naharot. So on the poplars, in the midst, referring back to the waters, in, in the middle of or, or by the waters, we hung our kinur. Kinur. And that's a guitar, right? It's a stringed instrument. Yeah, it's a guitar. They hung their fenders. <laughs> they hung their martins, right? Yeah. That's that's what it is? Yeah, liar. Zither. Yeah, zither. If you look up a picture of a zither, to me it kind of looks like a dulcimer. Have you Googled a picture of a zither? I haven't, but I can right now. You should check out the Google images of the zither. I think it looks kind of like a dulcimer. It's not exactly like a dulcimer, but it's a lap. It's a lap oh, yeah. string instrument that you play. Oh, yeah. Looks a lot like one. Yeah, so... That's an intricate instrument. How it says it is an uh, Indo-Iranian instrument. I guess there's evidence from Sanskrit. Kinari. Uh, so I think in, in the minds of ancient folks, this is a type of harp. Um, it's a it's a small harp 
this is a way to make harp i guess more accessible rather than having the big 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 harp but for me it looks like a kind of guitar dulcimer thing and uh, i would like to play one <laughs> so al aravim betocha talinu kinorotenu Oh, I feel better about that one. All right, you want to do verse three? Kisham she'elunu shovenu divrei shir v'tolalenu shimcha shiru lanu mishir sion. Yeah, man. Had to get that little tss in there. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Verbs? Uh, That third one. Sha'al. Sha'alinu. Yeah, that's a vocab one. Sha'al. What's sha'al? Ask. Ask. Any other verbs? Um, no, no. No, one I thought was isn't, so. Oh, I see one right after right after the one you just parsed. But Sha'al, we didn't even parse it. Well, it's a third person plural. Yeah, cow perfect, 3CP from right. Sha'al. Plus. A first person suffix. Yeah, plus a one plural suffix. And then we've got Chauvenu, and this is a cow participle. Oh, yeah. No, oh, I, eh. oh, eh. I skipped right over that one. Oh, eh, vowel pattern. And then it's got a 1CP suffix on it as well. And if we look up, uh, well, if we, one, there's something missing. This is another third position hay where the hay has gone away, and we've got a yod there. It's not a hyric yod this time. It's a sere yod. That's generally when when yod is used to indicate a vowel. It's generally hyric or sere. That's what you find most of the time. Here it's a sere yod, and so this is from shava. Shava cow perfect three ms is something like he deported or he captured uh, in the course meaning in the course of battle. So if this is a participle. Uh, that means it is a verbal adjective, and we have to figure out, is it attributive, predicative, or substantive? I'm going to stab at substantive. <clears throat> yeah, and if you already know the song, and people are familiar with it, we know that this is the, the captors, or the kidnappers, or those who have done the capturing. Okay. So they so some translations might say our captors. Right. No other verbs? Uh yeah. What do you see? Well Okay, so they're gonna at least my parsing software calls shiru a, a verb. Yeah, what kind of verb? An imperative, cal yeah. imperative, second masculine plural. Yeah, from shear, we know that one. That's easy. That's sing. Right. Right. 
So y'all sing. Y'all sing. Talking to a group of folks, the folks sitting there. Y'all sing. All right, any other verbs? No. No, so let's put it together. What do you see? Uh, Kisham for there. Our captors. Uh, basically asked us. Yeah, they, because it's a 3CP verb, so they asked, and then the object of the asking is right there in the suffix, new. They asked us. Debre, sheer words of a psalm or psalm. Yeah, maybe we could say lyrics. Give us the lyrics and drop a beat. And liner notes. We're in the liner notes. We want to read the lyrics and the liner notes. <laughs> these kids these days won't know what liner notes are, Dr. Rodriguez. Give us the words of a song so they want to, <laughs> they're asking, saying, get up and dance. Dance for me. Sing me a song. Sing for us. Ve. Vetola Lenu. So. Yeah. This is another way we can get support that Shovenu is a substantive because it's in parallel here to a noun. Okay. And this noun is uh, tricky. A lot of people might translate it something like, uh, I'm looking at the Net Bible here, it says tormentors. Uh, an earlier version of Oppressor. the ERV said enemies. Oppressors. Oppressors. Let's see. Let's pick a. Let's see. Old school. King, King James said. Uh, oh, they that wasted us. Ooh. So rather than picking a word, they they're trying to actually get at what this means. Uh, it's difficult. How it tells us this is a hapex legomenon, which means it only happens once in the whole Bible. It's right here. And there's a handful of those words. That, you know, even if they only, let's say you only have the Bible to look at, you can get an idea of how something is used because it's used a lot of times across the corpus. And then there's other times when we can look outside of the Bible and see how things are used elsewhere in Hebrew and that can help. And that's kind of the only thing you can do here. And even then you're kind of grasping a little bit. So we have to use uh, a lot of context, and we need to see how it's been translated by other ancient folks because maybe the other ancient folks uh, had a had a they were closer to the original, and so maybe had a better understanding than us. So something like the Septuagint here could be very helpful. Yeah, and they had they say something like those who led us away. Um, so referring back to the captors. Uh, Hallett says there's no verbal derivation for the substantive or rather for the adjective. It's certain the versions differ, and there's a corresponding difference in modern renderings. And then references that folks check out an article by Kellerman. These either develop a meaning from Masoretic text or some make suggestions for a conjectural reading. One rendering that prefers the Masoretic text and should be considered is our mockers, or rather those that make a mockery of us. This would derive from the verb halal, uh, and there's uh, a few different entries, and they're, so, they're citing halal, the third uh, usage of it, polel stem, uh, 
to make a mockery of, and that's that's in Hallett. And uh, I think Dehud, they they're looking at Dehud and Freeman uh, as some who follow that. So that would actually be a parsing here, saying that this is a verb, uh, possibly, but we can't prove that because it's a hapex. And you can't prove anything about a hapex because it only happened once. So maybe this is a polel verb from a one-position hey verb, and actually it's a geminate verb also because we've got two lamids back-to-back. And so maybe this would also be another substantive participle in the polel stem. Maybe not. Uh, And then Hallett says the Septuagint has the conjecture, uh, which is really just trying to build off the parallelism with captors. Also um, looking at the Peshitta and the Vulgate and some other stuff that's in there. And there's also a proposal to translate it, those who lead us into slavery, from Talal. But uh, I don't think Talal actually happens in biblical Hebrew, so they're looking at an Arabic cognate for that. And maybe that's the case, maybe it's not. Um, For super nerds who have read some of the stuff that I've written, I have argued against using Arabic to inform biblical Hebrew simply because most of the Arabic that gets used is Quranic Arabic, and Quranic Arabic is late. Um, you know, the Quran's after the New Testament. So uh, I, I don't I – and I'm not saying Arabic is not useful to understand how uh, Hebrew developed because they're both Semitic languages, and, you know, they, they, they both can say something about how something might have developed, uh, at least give some typological evidence for that. However, as a practice, I think it's best to avoid using anachronistic data to figure out. I mean, if, if something happens later, you know, if I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the Astros in 2017 to tell me how the Astros were doing in 1994 because I was a kid in 1994 and it wasn't that great. I don't think <laughs> 2017 was pretty good for the Astros, so. But I didn't know that back in 1994. I had to wait till now. So, you know, and there's folks that disagree with me that think that Arabic is always useful. And I'm not saying it's not, but at least the the sources that often get used to give Arabic comparative linguistic information for biblical Hebrew is Quranic Arabic. And so if, if we can uh, ensure that Arabic sources are pre-Quranic, uh, then I think it will be much more useful for biblical Hebrew. Do you but, think that older languages are more useful, like Ugaritic and Akkadian, and those? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I mean, there's evidence that some of that's predating stuff, and some of it's contemporaneous with other other stuff. And um, it just in in the exact same way, I don't think modern Hebrew or rabbinic Hebrew is instructive for understanding biblical Hebrew because it's later. Um, I understand that, that they're, you know, and I don't think Mishnaic Hebrew is, is helpful for understanding biblical Hebrew because it's later. I think biblical Hebrew is very helpful for understanding Mishnaic Hebrew or rabbinic Hebrew or modern Hebrew or, you know, medieval Hebrew or all the stuff that happened after it. 
but I don't think you can rightly work backwards with linguistic information saying later stuff can inform earlier stuff. That's right. The right. The earlier stuff informs the later stuff. Yeah. That makes sense. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes, um, is that what I'm thinking of? What was I thinking of? No, 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 not Ecclesiastes. What were we doing? We had Olam earlier. I guess that was Psalm 136. Yeah. Yeah, in modern Hebrew, and if you ask most Jewish people who even if they don't really study Hebrew, they just have learned some prayers, um, they'll think Olam means world because in a prayer we refer, you know, because Adonai is the Melaka Olam. He's the, you know, he's the king of the world. And that's great and that's modern hebrew and that there there is a development but in biblical hebrew alam does not mean world it means a long expanse of time you know that's beyond human comprehension whether you want to call that eternity or not but but it's uh it's it's anachronistic i think to use later language to inform earlier language Right. And I think we were dealing with some folks on uh, – or talking to some folks <laughs> on the internet about that also. And, oh, uh, no. If you want to use uh, the Kabbalah, that's great. But I don't think the Kabbalah is going to help you read the Bible. But the Bible might help you read the Kabbalah. Actually, I think the Bible will help you read everything. Yeah. It's just me. I'm biased. So did we put this one together? Uh, No. We got stopped at uh, our tormentors at this Hapex Legomenon. Yeah, okay. our Tolan Lenu. <laughs> uh, so then our tormentors asked uh, Simcha. Uh, basically, joy. Joy. They ask for joy. <laughs> they demand that we be happy. They demand. That we we be joyous, jerks. That's offensive. Yeah, it is. It's, it's incredibly offensive. Yeah, especially when you get to the end, right? I so mean, guess what kind of song we're gonna sing? Guess what song we're gonna sing? You want me to be happy with a smile on my face and sing a song? Okay, fine. I got one for you. <laughs> Here it comes. <laughs> All right. So they they kind of mockingly say, "Sing us a song of joy," and then sing one of your Zion songs. Yeah, sing for us, Lanu. So we have the imperative then, Shiru Lanu. So sing for us from. We have a me, preposition me. Oh, preposition from. In. Yeah, from Shir Zion, from the Zion song. So sing a Zion song for us. They don't even call it Jerusalem. They say, sing a Zion song for us. Be happy, sing a Zion song for us. For there, so where's the Sham? What's Sham referring to? By the the Naharot Babel. Yeah, yeah, where it's bringing us back to this scene. They're they're physically sitting down next to these waterways. And there's some speculation I've read before by some commentators about, you know, maybe the hard day that they had finished and they're chilling there. And somebody's got a little lap harp 
that uh, they might have called a key or that they call a kinor, and I'd call it a lap harp, but that's just me. Some call it Clack Kaiser Blade. I call it Sling Blade. <laughs> and uh, there, this is where this is happening. So right there, they ask us, our tormentors, for lyrics, for, for joy. Sing a Zion song. Then we get to verse four. Ech nashir et shir Yahweh al admat nechar. So ech, if you are familiar with Lamentations, you know that the book of Lamentations is not called Lamentations. It's called Echa, which is, uh, and you're not really going to translate that in English very well, but it's more like uh, WTF. <laughs> How? Um, it's uh, in in mourning. So how? How did this happen? So how or what? How? How? And then I see a noon here that is indicating a one CP imperfect verb. So this is how we sing. And contextually, I know that I'm going to probably, in English for translation, going to supply a can. How can we sing? How can we sing the Yahweh song, the song of Yahweh, et shir Yahweh? How can we sing the Yahweh song on foreign land? Al admat nechar. Nechar. That which is um, yeah, it's generally you might learn it as a verb, and in, like in the nefal stem, it means to disguise oneself or like to be hidden. Um, but it's also used as a noun nechar for foreigner or a foreign country or a foreign god. Here it's describing land admat nechar. So they ask us to sing a Zion song, and the response is, how can we sing the Yahweh song on foreign land? So we had one verb there. That was it. Verse 5. So im eshkahech Yerushalayim tishkach yemini. Great. All right. Verbs. Uh, that first one, shakach. Yeah, you see the olive up front, so you know right away that's a that's a giveaway for for the parsing. Right for first person singular. Yeah, we know that's an imperfect form, first person, uh, common singular. Don't, don't leave out the gender. You know, it's not just a first person singular; it's a first person common gender, meaning that the way that things are grammaticalized are to reflect distinguishing between masculine and feminine and also recognizing that some things mean the speaker could be anyone. When you say I, when you say we, that is not, that is not masculine or feminine. 
It's not neuter. Neuter is a is a is a totally different grammatical gender. It's a it's a third option for a grammatical gender, like you have in Greek. This is not that. This is saying these are the, this this is both used by masculine and feminine. It's common to both. Right. I just assume on first that it's always common because they both are so. Well, just saying yeah. for folks to not be sloppy about it, you know, right. when, you do, when, you know, uh, just a full good, uh, if you're, if you're in school, want to get all your points on a test, parsing for biblical Hebrew, you, you need the person gender and number. Right. Yeah. PGN. And I need to get better at doing that. Well, so then that's, yeah, that's a Cal imperfect one C S. And Plus, then there's a feminine singular suffix on it. Uh, yeah, but there's but this is a this is a pronoun, and pronouns also have person, gender, and number. I so it's not it's not just feminine and singular. It's also a one, two, or three. I don't know. Yes, you do. If I cheat, is, let me see. One, no, because no, you listen. Don't cheat yet, because you did this before. One is eh. And one is ha. Which one is this? Is this ech or is this ha? Ech. Well, is that feminine or is it masculine? That's feminine. You got it. Okay. All right. So is that for I or is that you? Mashlom ha. Mashlom ech. Right. That's you. You. So is that one, two, or three? Two. Two. You got it. So this is a second person feminine singular. Right. Okay. So it's you, but it's... You didn't have to look. You knew that. It's you, but it's feminine you. Yeah, it's feminine you. Okay. So then... you, and then what's the root of the verb? What what is Shakach, which is forget. All right. Or is it that... I don't know. Yeah, no, it's forget. No, I'm talking about the pronunciation of it. Oh, well, you know, here some vowels have been... So up front... Now, you know, generally, when we talk about something in its cow perfect form, we're looking at two A-type vowels. And if you open up palette here, you see that even though there's some uh, some stuff going on, because this is not what you'd think of as a prototypical strong verb, one of them is begad kafat and another one's guttural. So there's issues there. Whenever you see a dogesh, you got to figure out w- what is it doing, you know. Right. And when it's in a begad kafat, it's doing something specific. And then with gutturals, gutturals are gutturals, and but sometimes they they they're they're not exactly consonants the way other consonants are consonants. So sometimes there's an issue with a guttural in a certain spot. There's there's sections in weak verb uh, reference uh, material on gutturals when a guttural happens because sometimes something might change there. Okay. But even then, still, when you look at this cow perfect three ms form, it is shachach. Sorry, shachach. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I thought. I just pronounced it wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, if you if you're looking at there, you got a sheen, a cough, no dogesh, so it's a guttural cough, and then a chet. Right. Two a type vowel shachach. And if you want to do it seminary style, shachach. <laughs> and that's I, not really correct because it's a guttural, but you know, whatever. If you want to do vocab, just learn it. That's fine. Do what you got to do. 
So for so so Cal Perfect Three MS would be he forgot. Right. And if it was in a different stem, like if it's Nifal, it would be passive, be forgotten. And but this is a cow, you know. So all right, any other verbs? Mm. Yeah. Oh, same verb. I see the same root consonants. Right. Just a different prefix up front, so it's not a first person. What's this one going to be? Uh, this is a third person. Third feminine. Right. Singular. Th- yeah. Yeah. So this goes back with... Well, hold on. Let's look first. So let's finish it. So this is a cow imperfect or we can just say it is a yiktol verb three ffs from the same root as before shakach so it's another forget so put it all together im if if keep going uh i forget you jerusalem ah what's the gender of jerusalem even though you hear the im what what's most important about the last part of the the name Jerusalem is the shalom so it's it's the don't 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 get confused thinking thinking something else so then it's a feminine it's feminine because most because they're most of the time feminine city names are feminine right you know cities are are thought of as feminine well also, and they say things know, like Jerusalem she is and stuff like that Right, and she's called Daughter Zion, or some people might say Daughter of Zion if they want to be real strict with the construct chain, but I think that's a renaming there uh, in, in places where that happens, Daughter Zion. So, And then, you know, the prophets talk about Jerusalem being in, in this very feminine way, and uh, we need to read one of those texts to to do all that. But Read about Oholibah. <laughs> yeah, but... So when it says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, this is evidence that we're supposed to treat Jerusalem in the vocative, that it's it's being addressed. Right. So here what we had is these folks are sham, sham by the rivers, by the canals, right? Right. And they're asked for the Zion song. And Zion is a spiritual name for Jerusalem. And they part of this psalm here is if I forget you, Jerusalem. Tish Kach Yemeni. And I think we're actually whenever we see uh, finish this out, we're going to see we need to adjust our parsing a little bit because this isn't just a Cal imperfect three FS. I think we're supposed to treat this as adjessive. So instead of something like my right hand will forget, it'd be more like may my right hand forget. Yeah, may my right hand forget. My right hand will forget, but it's in that uh, almost cursing sense. Right. 
you know, or, or making a, making an oath, making a promise. Right. So may this happen. That's, it's my will that this, that this will happen. You're not wrong to say will, but we don't want to just think this is a straight up future. This is having to do with the speaker's intense feelings about it. Like if I forget you. Now, Modest Yahoo has a good song on this and I don't know if you've heard it. I think I talked to you, but did have you listened to it? No. Uh, can you put it on while play, or will that like get us? Is that like a violation of something? Usually, yeah. It's called Jerusalem, and it's by Modest Yahoo. And I got a YouTube link, and you can listen to it. But it's a really cool song, and it and the chorus is Jerusalem. If I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. And it's his translation of of this verse and it's may my right hand forget so if i forget you may my right hand forget and what does that mean for your right hand to forget you know i don't know yeah so there's a lot of a lot of ideas there there's Um, there's a note in the in the bible that i'm looking at what are you looking at what Bible are you looking at? It's the Lexham English Bible. Okay, what did I so say? It's their in-house one. It says that is how to play a musical instrument. Mm. All right. Uh, some have said, uh, may my right hand be crippled. Uh, the Net Bible argues for that. Mm. Um, Alan argues for some emendation here I'm looking at Alan right now but I don't see it because not all commentators write their commentaries in the same way some people lay it out very clearly verse by verse so you can go straight for what you're looking for and other people you got to read all right so I'm going to read from Alan right here again I wish I had Kraus on me if somebody's got Kraus and wants to call into the hotline <laughs> which means uh you know call up your mother and read cross to her <laughs> no that'd be great you share a good i don't want i mean I, I got the book i can go get the book i just don't have it on me right now but share it with someone you love um he pledges his personal commitment to Jerusalem and echoes the note of joy associated with the solo songs of Zion, Psalm 84 and 122. His devotion takes the form of a solemn vow invoking upon himself the penalty of physical handicap. Hmm. May he never be able to play the lyre again nor sing again should he forget just as in the songs of Zion. Okay, so Alan's saying the same thing, I guess, as your as your Lexham folks. So let's get to verse six. Oh man, you got a short verse. I uh, know. Yeah, I did. You got the longer one, huh? Yeah, here we go. Tidbak Leshoni Lehiki Lehiki Im Lo Azkare Ki im lo ale et yerushalayim al rosh shimchati well 
You give me another stab at that later, I'll make it sound nice. <laughs> uh, I told myself, I'm going to go over some of these before we do it. They're going to sound real good. I didn't do that. Nah, this is keeping it real. <laughs> We're keeping it real. So we have, uh, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget. And then we have another here. We see another uh, Tav prefix, no suffix. So I'm going to say, well, what, I, what do I, what do I want to bet this is going to be another feminine jessive? Right. Comma. From... <laughs> From the back, what is the back or the back, depending on if that dog is just, yeah, clean, cleave, hold to, stay close, la shone, la shone, la shone, my tongue, le hiki, to my palate. Yeah, so this is again going back to the if I forget you. If I forget you, may my right hand be crippled, comma, like you said, may the may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. So more context here for what does it mean for the hand to be crippled? We're talking about music most likely, you know, mm-hmm. as uh, as the the parallel line as the parallel line says. Modest Yahoo says, Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. Um, what's the second one? Jerusalem, if I forget you. Something like fire not going to come from my tongue because he's a rapper who spits fire. Right. But I forget exactly how he lays it down now. So I guess I'll have to listen to that song. I wish I could play it here and share the thing that's totally free on YouTube and everybody could listen to, but for some (laughs) reason, if we do it, we'll get in trouble. Right. Then we have... Another verb from Zakar. I see the Aleph up front, so it's a one CS from Zakar with a weird suffix. Uh, the suffix, uh, norm- <laughs> yeah. Well, normally you would just expect the the final cough. But here, this is a it's a it's a two fs at least. Um, that's how it's functioning. Um, but it's I, I would like to do a search and see how often that happens. So again, um, this one would be remember, but it's got a low in front of it. So uh, same thing. If I don't remember you, uh, another verb. From Allah, this is a hifil imperfect 1CS. We've got the olive up front. The vowel changes on the inside, especially that E-type vowel uh, before the third hay. So go up. Cause to go up. Let's see what this is in hifil. You looking at this verb too? No. I can. Well, I mean, in Hifil, I'm just seeing how many. So go up, cause to go up, raise up, 
All right, so I think that's all the verbs. Did I parse all the verbs? I think so. Yeah. All right, let's see if we can put it together. So, may my tongue cleave or stick to my palate, to the roof of my mouth, if I do not remember you. If I do not raise up. If I do not elevate, let's say, if I do not, uh, oh, what does my wife like me to say? Prioritize. <laughs> Need to work on that. Uh, ale. <laughs> <laughs> if I do not uh, lift you up, or it's not uh, lift you, it's just if I do not lift up. Jerusalem, Arosh Simchati, on the head of my joy, as my first joy is what gives me the most joy over, how would you handle that, over the head of my joy? Uh, or, I don't know, yeah, I mean... Again, Lexum translates it highest. Yeah, so I guess then if we wanted to get really picky with the poetry, and I don't know if you're supposed to get really picky with poetry. I think you're supposed to feel the poetic impact and move on. But, hey, we're here. Um, Is this saying if I don't lift up or, or cause Jerusalem to rise above a simcha, that I already have as my highest one? Or am I supposed to take this whole thing as superlative, uh, even though the preposition there looks like it's building on a spatial metaphor with Allah? Like there's two, like there's a trajectory and a landmark. There's one, there's two things, you know, and one of them's inside the prepositional phrase. Or is it a more of just, it's using that, but is am I supposed to take it, not trying to pick it apart, and more superlative as lift this up, cause this to be my highest joy, al rosh simchati, like on on the head of, I mean, I don't get that, on the head of my joy. That's weird. What do you think, man? I'm over here struggling by myself. I, you know, I mean, it. It, I think it could go either way there. I think it can easily be something like above or over, you know, what I hold highest. Well, but it could also be what you're saying and be. I don't something care what like you think. What can you prove? Well, I'm looking at all right now in Hallett, so that's why I have a stuttered response. What is I what are you seeing from Al and Hallett? And by the way, if you want the most up to date information on Al, I think Andrea Mena's master's thesis available at Sun Scholar is probably the best place to go. Well, with the preposition Al, generally with prepositions, you have a with spatial prepositions, you have a trajectory landmark relationship. And this is in most languages, meaning in English, with over like Al is upon or over most right. of the time. So with over, you have one thing in relationship 
to another thing. So the cat jumped over the fence. The fence is the landmark and the cat is the trajector and over tells us the pathway of the trajector in relationship to the landmark. Okay. So if this is lift up or I will cause to rise Jerusalem over my joy or over the head of my joy, whatever head of my joy means, does that mean that so in that relationship, head of my joy is a landmark as the thing that and then here it would mean this very high landmark, you know, the the, the thing that is in in terms of joy is the Roche for the speaker, not and using an embodied term, that's the highest you get. I mean, what's higher than your head? Right. So does that mean lift Jerusalem over that? Is Jerusalem as a trajector in a pathway, or at least saying spatially, going to be lifted over the Rosh Simchati? Or is that doing too much with a preposition in this psalm because it's poetic and it just means you're going to you're going to sit in the place of that. And again, that might be another use of all there. Um where where it might be simply that uh Jerusalem is going to occupy that space of the Rosh Simchati, but then again, it's it's uh, the the verb is caused to rise, and then there's that preposition over, which really makes one think. I mean, most of the time that's used, that's this it's a vertical spatial relationship, and this is talking about superior space. And I don't mean superior as in best. I mean superior versus anterior or posterior or inferior. I mean top, bottom, front, back. Let's see, Septuagint. Let me open up. Ooh, I can get my new toy open. What do you have? Tell folks about your new toy. I have the the Gottingen Septuagint. Oh, you have a real one. <laughs> I am using Rolf, which is a hodgepodge of different texts, and you honestly don't know what you're looking at when you're looking at it. So Gottingen is much more specific as to tell you what what you are looking at because there is no such thing as the Septuagint. The first thing in history that was ever called the Septuagint was Rolf's Septuaginta. Um, there is no ancient manuscript that exists that says, hi, folks, this is the Septuagint. There's just a whole bunch of different Greek manuscripts. Yeah, there's a whole lot. Well, some of them are translations. Some of them are not. Because the Septuagint, some of it is translation Greek and some of it is composed Greek. There's some stuff that exists in the Bible that is a Greek Bible that does not exist in Hebrew Bible, like Psalm 151. Oh, so yeah, that's right. There's no Psalm 151, huh? Well, there is if you're reading a Greek Bible. So right. if, if, if the argument is Jesus was using the Septuagint, which by the way, there's no such thing as the Septuagint. It mean, means Jesus was using one of the Greek Bible traditions that existed at that time. And there's different ones. I mean, obviously at that time he wasn't using the Christian one because there were no Christian Greek Bible traditions, but what exactly was it? You know, we don't, there's probably, you know, nerds that, that get into that. 
Uh, the Septuagint translates Rosh here as Archaic. Okay, well that Archaic. would make sense. And they translate the Al as In. So the Septuagint does not take a spatial uh, metaphor reading. It does not do the traditional way you would do a preposition of... So it's like more like in the top place for them? In the Archaites Euphrosunes. I'm awesome at Greek, as you can hear. <laughs> you, I know you means good, because uh, you and Galizo, right? So you and Frain. BDAG says joy, gladness, cheerfulness. So the RK, so the beginning or the first. Yeah, so the beginning of my gladness, the beginning of my cheerfulness, beginning of my joy. And that is possible for Rosh also in Hebrew. You know, that's a good, that's not a, that's, that's a perfectly valid, you know, we, we do not have to think of Rosh simply as head, uh, as, I mean, obviously Rosh is a body part noun, but body part nouns come to be used in many different ways. And we all know from Genesis 1-1 that Rosh in Rashid gets used in as a temporal marker. Um, so it might be something like beginning, marking a beginning. So on the beginning of my joy. Hmm. All that. I think, well, no, no, I mean, we, you know, which one is it? We've got, we've got some, is it, is it a, is it a prepositional phrase where most prepos, I mean, in here you've got a, you've got a motion verb, you know, if I don't cause something to rise or, you know, it's, it's a, it's a hifil form of Allah. That's a motion verb. And then it's all, that looks like a spatial metaphor to me. Yeah. So it, it seems as if there is a landmark. That is at some Rosh Simchati, and Jerusalem is to be put Allah Al that thing, you know, be lifted or ascended over that. However, in translation, or if I was singing the song, or if I was doing it at church or something, I think Halitz is the best way to understand it for people. This is my highest one. This is my chief joy. Right. And I also think the Septuagint is not wrong. <laughs> does uh Gottingen have something different or does it does it mark anything unique there? Uh I don't even know how to open it yet. <laughs> on well, this on my on my laptop I mean. I've got it open on my desktop, but yeah. Well, I don't know if we said this uh last time, but uh the Dead Sea Scrolls is just very very missing here for Psalm 137. Psalm 137 in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's evidence um, for verse 1 and verse 9. So the very beginning and the very end. Wow. Um, cave 11, I believe. So that's what we got there. 
What's next? You mean the next verse? Are we at the next verse, or is there something else we need to discuss here? May the may the may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I don't take your pick, <laughs> if I don't lift lift Jerusalem over my highest joy, lift Jerusalem, esteem Jerusalem as my highest joy. Yeah, I think that would be a fair way to treat it in English. Hey, so you're going to read verse 7 now, and then I'm going to read verse 8, and then you get to read verse 9. Yes. <laughs> Keep going. I this. like how this worked out. <laughs> so wait, wait, wait. So that means basically the Dead Sea Scrolls is only interested in, in the good part of this verse. Right? <laughs> it's by the rivers of Babylon where we sat down and smashing babies' heads. That's all they're doing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> wow. They do Jimmy Cliff and they do the baby's heads. They're not doing Modest Yahoo in the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> Oh, right into verse 7 we go. <laughs> Zakor Yahweh, Livne, Adon, Et Yom, Yerushalayim, Haomarim, Aru, Aru, Ad, Hesuf, Ba. Try that second to last one again. Hayesuf, Ba. Where are you getting a Suf? Ah, Hayasofba. <laughs> where are you? Where? What? Uh, am, am I looking at the wrong thing? You Do we are have different texts. No, I'm. I'm doing an eye jump. Hayasod. There you go. Sorry. Yeah. Hayasod. Hayasod. Yeah. Hayasod. All right, birds. Uh, first one's a cal imperative to ms. Eo, eo. Yeah. Helps us remember. And it's again remember, so it's remember Yahweh. So mm -hmm. it's now Verb. is that is that commanding Yahweh? Hold on, verb. Let's just parse the verbs okay, and then we'll figure fine. out how it goes together. Uh, no, How are no, you going to no, put no. it together if you don't know what you got? Well, I mean... People do it all every day. <laughs> it's called preaching. No, wait, it's ha called Omrim. theology. Ha-Omrim. That's easy. Come on. It's a mar with a ha in front of it. Yeah, I wasn't there yet. I was looking at the other ones. Oh. Ha-Omrim, that's to say... So that's a, oh, a, that's a participle, right? Yeah, it's a participle, and it's not singular. No, it's a plural. Yeah, it's a ma it's a cow, participle. Plural, participle with a direct, uh, direct object with a determiner. Yeah, definite article. Hey, there you go. so that lets us know very, very easily. Every, the the writer of this psalm says, "Do not be mistaken. This is a substantive." participle right the speakers okay 
the speakers, the ones who yeah, said those ones. Yeah, those who said the speakers, the sayers, the the amarers, the ones who were amaring. Okay. And what were they saying? <laughs> aru aru. So I got no idea, so I'm cheating, and those are PAL imperative. Man, this MPs. one's hard. This one's hard. You know, it this is hard because it's it's got a There's no Danish. It's got a iron in there, it's got a third position hay, which is dropped out, and it's got a race. And race here is strong, but you know, sometimes race is problematic. Right. So so if we look it up, Aru, this is from Ara, which it looks like it never occurs in Cal perfect form in the Bible. It looks like it happens in Cal imperative in Isaiah. Mm. But it is mostly in PL. And then we also see some Hifel, Hippiel, but mostly in PL. So based on that ending, we can at least parse it since we know the root now. Take stab. Well, I'm cheating because. Well, then cheat. Cheat. PL imperative 2MP. PL imperative to MP. Well, do we, do we not understand this? Let's go prove it if we don't understand it. What do you think is going to be most important? Is it going to be that that first position or that third position? Obviously, the third has gone away. So third Hayes, I'm on one, page 115 in BHRG. Third Hayes, PLs. Oh, boom. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So it's using Gala for pay uh, for the third Hay paradigm verb. I think we talked about this last time when we had another third Hay. Right. But now we're looking in the PL stem, and we want to go to the imperatives. And we want to look at the plural imperatives. These are going to be masculine plural imperatives. Using gala, here it would be galu. So it gets an A-type vowel. And then it's got that ooh ending that we would expect. And then there is a dagesh forte inside the lamid for... So this is uh, salient here. This is very salient here. Everything matters here. So there is a in, – in the paradigm, this doesn't 100% fit because there's not a doggish forte in the race, right? Right. But why isn't there a doggish forte in the race? Because race can't take one, right? Yeah, race doesn't do that. Yeah, the, and that that's why race is weird sometimes. That's why okay. sometimes race – matters for weakness because race is still a guttural right race is weird you know i mean if you're when we read it we're saying aru but if somebody maybe a sephardic speaker is reading it would they do that more like a french or would it be something like ahu 
That's what my spoken class is, yeah. You know? And that's probably more correct and, you know, great. When I'm doing modern Hebrew with folks, you know, honestly, there's so much... uh, There's been a lot of westernization of of modern Hebrew that it doesn't matter, man. It's kind of like Spanish in Texas now, man. It's like... (laughs) It's its own thing. No, it's like if people got like my my boss uh, my bosses speak Spanish better than I do and and sometimes they kind of have an accent and most of the time they don't and they they sound like white guys speaking Spanish but they do it pretty perfectly and nobody cares cuz they obviously know what they're talking about. Right. They're just not trying to do the, you know, they're not trying to sound like they're from there cuz they're not from there. Okay. Well, I can get that. I get that. Uh, so anyway, all that to say is everything matters here. You know, there's a, there's an iron up front. So you got to ask questions and actually the vowel is not the same. They're both a type vowels, but in the paradigm, you're expecting a patak. Right. What we get here is a comet. Right. Um, but that's okay. They're A-type vowels. It's not totally off, and ion is a little weird, right? Right. Then there's supposed to be a redoubling in the second uh, root consonant. There's not. <laughs> <laughs> but we can explain why. And then the third hey drops off, and you get the typical suffix. Oh, okay. Well, that's the same. All right. So. All right. So, aru, aru, ad... Hasod, how did you, are we done parsing? You going to do the whole thing now? Yeah, that's all the parsing. All right, put it together. So, remember Yahweh. Uh... I don't know what to do with... Let's click that one and see what to do with Libne. So is Libne, that you don't know what to do with? Well, Bene is the sons, right? Sons of who? Edom. So remember the Edomites, right? But what do I do with that Lee in front? Oh, with the Lamed, right? Oh, maybe that's going to answer your earlier question about is this saying remember Yahweh or Yahweh remember? Ha ha ha! So. Who's who's being remembered and who's doing the remembering? Who what is that Lamed helping you understand? Is it attribution? Well, like, of what? Of like, what? What? Of I mean this this is not a Lamed of attribution as in the 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 Psalm No, no, I just mean like this is who needs to be remembered. Yeah, there's, there's, this is helping you explain syntactically the relationship with Zakor. Okay, so then it's Yahweh doing the remembering. Yeah, it's Yahweh's in the vodka. So the speaker, in a very impolite, imperative tone. I mean, come on, who speaks to Yahweh in the imperative? At least you're supposed to do a jessive and, you know, let's talk about him in front of him like he's third person, right? Maybe, <laughs> you know, but this is a, this is a very direct way to approach the deity. But he's about right. to say something terrible, so I guess he doesn't care. <laughs> remember then Yahweh. So remember Yahweh. Remember what? The Edomites. And yeah, so Lamed is doing a job here 
Um, is is it is it marking the object? I don't think that's the you know some people might want to say it's functioning that way. Um, but in the Lamed section, I think there's a very good summary of how Lamed functions that can help us in situations like this, 39.11. That is what, page 348. This is one of those sections, uh, Beit, Lamed, and Kaf, that Yeni uh, did a lot of work on in German and wrote... Uh, exhaustively on all the uses of Beit Lamed, prepositions of Beit Lamed and Kaf in his work. In the earlier edition of BHRG, Christo summarized and systematized a lot of that. And so I believe a lot of this is still the same, but I know there's been some updates. Let me just read this because this is very, very helpful, especially for new Hebrew readers dealing with vocab because you deal with Lamed a lot. The preposition Lamed occurs... 20,725 times. Wow. In 4,433 instances, it governs a pronominal suffix, like lecha or li or, you know, lo or something like that. Preposition lamed is often part of secondary prepositions and even conjunctions and question words, as in lifne, lama'an, lachen, lama'an. And others. Here we go. The preposition lamed does not have a specialized meaning. It indicates a very general relationship between two entities that can be best described as X as far as Y is concerned. So, I think that is generally the the best way to take it there's obviously some more specific usages particularly some uh patterned uh, syntax usages like lamed with an infinitive construct but for for the most part i think that's just a good thing to remember is lamed what does lamed mean lamed means x as far as y is concerned so it's relating these two things together. Remember Yahweh, remember what? The B'nai Adom. So remember the Edomites because of what's coming next? No, and this is, here we go, here's, a, here's another thing, is now we're still getting the, the, uh, the object of the verb. That's an object marker, right? Right. Oh, so we can say, uh, if we want to use uh, some more traditional grammar speak, that Lamed here is an indirect object marker, and et is a direct object marker. But I don't even think that really works, because you're still remembering kind of both things. So it's remember toward the Edomites, remember as far as, the Edomites, remember the Edomites as far as the day of Jerusalem. Lexham has against. Yeah, uh, the, there's a lot of, there's, and contextually we can see that, but how, how do we get there with just a Lamed? Right. Let me go back. 
So we have Lamed indicates indirect object. I think that's clearly indirect object when we have a object uh, marker right after it. Indicates experience relationship. Indicates re-evaluation consequence. Re-identification. Actualization indicates a reference to a time or place. Indicates a mode or manner. Even sometimes indicates causal relationship. So um, I don't I don't disagree that Lamed could be translated here against, but it is not the Lamed that gives you the right to translate that against. It's knowing contextually about the Edomites. Right. So that's not what Lamed means. Here, it's how it's used, and that's a great – that's what we need to do for translation. But if you're teaching somebody about Lamed, what does Lamed mean? Well, it means X as far as Y, and it gets used in grammar speak as an indirect object marker a lot of times. But that's not even really a good way to think about it. So it's – it's an oblique. It's um, remember about the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. Okay. Remember the day of Jerusalem about the Edomites. Remember the day of Jerusalem toward to as far as concerning the Edomites. Against. <laughs> Against the Edomites. So what were what Yahweh is being told to remember is the day of Jerusalem, and he's told to remember it in a context. And this preposition Lamed is providing us the context there. And it's a very different way to think about the meaning of the way a preposition can get used, an oblique can get used, rather than simply saying something like indirect object. Right. So this is the it is indirect object. They are the ones who are going to receive or experience uh, the remembering of Yahweh. Right. But what Yahweh's being told to remember is the day of Jerusalem about these Edomites, as far as these Edomites are concerned. Right. So only remember them because of what happened to Jerusalem. Yeah. So maybe something like remember what they did. Right. You know. And even there, boom, for, for translation, we're supplying, we're supplying words that aren't there. Right. <laughs> but this is the way translation works if you want people to understand it. Ha-Omrim, the saying, the one saying. So who is Ha-Omrim talking about? It's still the Edomites. The B'nai Edom, Aru-Aru. So this has something like pour it out or lay it bare or pour it out or lay it bare. If we're looking at some of the cognate stuff, strip it. Right. Uh, but we can get some help here contextually because of what, what finishes it out, this prepositional phrase. Odd. You want to finish that? Hi, so bah. 
Yeah, yeah, no, in your translation. <laughs> so the Hisod is the foundation. Mm-hmm. And so we have two prepositions. So we have the odd, so unto or until or as far as the foundation. Right? Yeah. And then ba. It's her. In it. Yeah, in yeah. her. Right. Referring to... Who's the her? Who's the who's the referent of that three fs suffix on Jerusalem? Yeah, yeah, you got it, man. So what? So we know this uh, pour out that the the context of it is the city, right? Okay, so that can help us in translation. We're talking about tearing down a city, right? Lay it bare, cast it down, or something like that. Destroy it, tear it down. Uh, Burn it down. Strip it, you know. From the window? All the way to its foundation, to its own foundations. Could we say her own? Sure, but you need to, if you want that to play in a translation, your audience needs to talk about cities like that. Right. In, In the way, I mean, you know, I'm, I know you can do that in American English, but most of the time for Americans now speaking English, cities are its. Right. C- cities aren't he or she. But some some folks still do that, and there's some languages where you have to do it. There's some languages where cities will always grammaticalize feminine. And right. It, 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 like it's wrong if you talk about a city in a way that's not feminine. and It's like, like grammatically wrong. And there's some languages where it's the opposite. Cities are always masculine. And it's okay. wrong if you don't talk about him as masculine. Okay. So yeah, you you could do that. Um, I think the the main thing to remember is the that throughout the Bible, Jerusalem is called daughter Zion, and we're about to get another daughter city right here in verse eight. So I think the daughterness of cities, the 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 feminineness. The sense that uh, the city is talked about as either a prestigious daughter or a beat up and abandoned daughter uh, is very significant to understanding what this all means. However, you hit a point in translation where you're not doing translation now, you're kind of doing Bible study. And honestly, for people that don't understand the culture, that's what it takes to do a fair translation. Right. (laughs) You're up for verse 8. All right. So 8, Bat Bavel, Hashaduda Ashre, She Yeshalem, Lach et Gemulech, She Gamat Lanu. All right. Um, only because I know this word because it is uh, one that gets in your head once you've read some violent texts a lot. You know, Shadad here. Uh, I know this is a, I know this is a verb and I know seeing the hay in front of it. Uh, I know, I already know this, this root is a verb just because vocab, I've seen it a bunch whenever there's violence, something is destroyed or devastated or, or it's terrible and it's Shadad. Uh, <laughs> And I've, I've seen that a lot. So I already know this is a verb. But there's a hay in front of it. And that means they're treating it like a noun. So that means it's a participle and it's going to be functioning 
as a substantival participle. But I also see this oo inside of it, and I know that means it's going to be passive. And I see it ends in this ah. So just looking at that, I'm going to guess that it is a definite article hey plus a cow feminine passive singular form of shadad. Very good. So, uh, something is destroyed. Bat Bavel. Bat Bavel. I bet she gonna be destroyed. Um, yes, Shalem. Yes, Shalem. She, yes, Shalem. So that's probably an apocopated form of a share plus a form of the verb Shalom. This is an imperfect form. It's, uh, well, I would want to say it's a Cal Imperfect 3MS, but uh, I believe that this verb doesn't do that very much like that, and it's got the doubling in Lamed. And I'm not sure about my vowels here, so with the doubling of the Lamed, let's just guess this is a PL. <laughs> um, so that's a PL Imperfect 3MS from Shalom. And then this other verb word that I don't know is probably a noun. And then I see another she. Uh, I'm going to guess that's a verb too, but that's one, two, three, and then a suffix. So that is a cow perfect uh, 2FS from Gamal. Well done. All right. So now let's go figure it out because I don't know all these vocab words. So daughter Babylon Hashaduda. So daughter Babylon, the destroyed one. The one who is destroyed. Or is this the dis- – yeah, this is not the destroyer because it's passive. They have about to be destroyed. Who's, the, who's they? Lexum. Well, that's probably because uh, let, let's say I'm just trying to be funny here. This is bad, but <laughs> if you are the dude hanging your zither on the tree, and the master comes by and says, "Sing me a song," and you call him Hashaduda, I don't <laughs> think that's about to be. I think that's hopefully going to be. <laughs> uh, no, but Hashaduda. That actually is a – that's a whole nother story there. We need to do a podcast one day with Irvin Bishop Ir, Irvin Bishop, and talk about what hope and expect means in Greek versus English because when he said he hoped somebody was going to get better and they knew the person was not going to get better, they said, what are you talking about? Like, Because hope cannot just mean – like we hope – we hope for things we know ain't going to happen. Right. Hope and well, hope, has more to do with expectation. Hope is, hope is expect. This is right. going to happen. Anyway. So, Daughter Babylon, the destroyed one. Happy, the one who makes peace with you. Probably, like, give you what you deserve. Because... Shalem, shalom, 
to make whole, to pay what's due. It's not just health and peace and and goodness, but uh, in the verb form, this verb means like oftentimes it's used in financial situations, like to pay for what you owe. And so that way it's uh, it's whole. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now I'm looking in PL, make intact, complete, make restitution. Oh, daughter, Babylon, the destroyed one, happy is the one who makes restitution to you. Et gemulech. So what's this gamal? Benefits, accomplishments. You got anything there? Uh, j- as the as the phrase runs, something like "happy is the one who pays back what you did to us." Uh, huh, huh, huh. So it's like uh, your payment accomplishment. Well, but I think it's going to lead right into verse nine, like clearly. Well, but here, here, here. But then you've got the, look at this though. You've got the root used back to back. So Gamal as a noun and then Gamal as a verb. So the one who pays you back at what you paid out to us is what Lexham says. Well, let's look at the Hebrew. Yeah. Well, okay. That's exactly what it is. What you Gamaled to us, what you, so I think however you're going to translate that first one, Completed. that shalim, uh-huh. I think that that needs to kind of like go through the rest of it. Where's the first one? Well, would, I mean, all the way actually back up where Shea shalim, like whatever you do with yeshalim there is going okay, to affect... Sure. We're talk- we're talking about verse eight. I thought you were talking about earlier. No, no, no. I'm still talking about verse eight. Just back a couple of words. Whatever you do with Yeshalem, you it's going to affect how you translate then. Yeah. And then the the, the next one. Mm. Um, Allen Leslie Allen has a, a note here. The authenticity of verse eight B. So this last part was widely questioned in early scholarship. Gunkel rejected it as a gloss on grounds of meter, which Alan comments was hardly conclusive. So it doesn't sound like Alan follows Gunkel there. A study of structure yields opposing arguments against Gunkel. If the object sign were absent, uh, meaning the object marker et there, its presence in verses 7 and 9 uh, w- would match the solemn occurrences in verses 1 and 4. On the other hand, Lanu to us may be regarded as an echo of verse 3b, and so too may the construction of the verb and cognate noun. Kellerman judged it. Uh, as an addition inspired by Jeremiah 50, verse 29, uh, which calls for the punishment of Babylon. 
However, there's closer approximations, such as Jeremiah 51, verse 6. So I think that's interesting, at least, that the ets here have something to do. The ets, in terms of the sound of the poem, are important. Um, we've seen that, functionally, the ets are important to mark the, the object of verbs, but there has even been a question of, is, uh, is verse 8 here, at least the last part of verse 8, authentic? And because apparently the meter seems to be off. But if those ets are there in verse 8, what about the ets in verse 7? What about the et in verse 9? So I think that is... Uh, Helpful if anybody's asking that question. So help me again with the with the yes shalim. What which, which, however we take that is instructive for what we do with gamal. Yeah, because it's I, I think that's especially since this is poetry. Mm -hmm. You know, it's they're setting in like I mean I'm only referring to Lexum because that's what I've got open. It's not because I use them all the time. But they say, "Happy shall he be who pays back to you what you paid out to us." Yeah. And so it's this I like. So however you're going to translate that Yeshalem is going to dictate what you do next. Well, they're both. I think this is this is um, using financial metaphors. I think um, it's eye for eye. Well, okay, but but the the but let's talk about translation though, because your translation says pay and pay, right? Right. So let's just look at a couple translations and think about these. I'm looking at the Net Bible right here, at least the older version of the Net Bible. I don't know if the new one has changed anything. How blessed will be the one who repays you for what you dished out to us? Yep. King James. Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. So reward and serve. NRSV, pay back what you have done. Old NIV, repays for what you have done. JPS, repays you in kind for what you have afflicted. ESV, repays you for what you have done. Um, PDT, Palabra de Dios, para todos en Spanish, uh, recibir, receive, um, and then cause, so may uh, receive and cause. Septuagint uh, calls, calls it a repayment. Septuagint. Antapodoma. That which is given in requital for a benefit. Return for a behavior. Yeah, so it actually uses the same word, uh, different forms of it. But you have antapodoma and then antapedokas. So these are... The, the, this verb in Greek is a 
big uh, combo of anti apa and didymi, and then the second one is also anti apa and didymi, and they're they're construed differently, but they're the same verb. So what I was saying is in the your lexin translation, it does the same. It's a, it uses pay twice. Right. The Septuagint uses the same repay kind of verb twice. Right. Hebrew has different money words, has different economics words. One is shalom, which uh, we know like from shalom is can be everything from high to peace to wellness and health and and well-being. Right. But in the the verb form of it in the PL. Most of the time is is repayment, repaying something, making something intact, making something whole, paying back uh, some something that's owed, or something that that needs to be finished or fulfilled to be. It's not complete, right? Right. And then we have this form of gamal, which is something that is the finished work of what something someone has done or maybe a benefit to them, but it is pay back this benefit. Pay back this almost what do you get after the work is done? Pay back this. Pay, I mean, you know. So, again, uh, I, I, I understand what it means. I'm, not, I'm not, not trying to quibble here about what it means, but when we specifically think about translation and translation style is there a way in english to be a little bit more creative because this is using money metaphors and the way to really drive it home in english so far so, from what i've heard has to been to strip it out of that metaphor so like to to rob them as they robbed us well i don't know there you're thinking about money but like in the net Bible, they had repays you for what you dished out to us. Right. D- dished out is not a money metaphor. Dished out means, you know, argument or fighting or conflict, you know. And I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying this is what happens in translation. And so we have to be very careful when we criticize translations. If the point of the translation is to be meaningful to the target audience, then what the net Bible here has done is great. Because right. Americans understand this language, repay you for what you dished out. Right. But if we do something like the one who gives you your paycheck for the work you have done, ah, that's a little different. Right. It's actually, no, it's not just we're getting you back. It's this is what you have earned. This is your paycheck. All this work you did. It's just time to get time to get paid now. Right. It's not just I'm I'm gonna get it's not just a a raw vengeance. This metaphor of money They've is, actually earned it. <laughs> it's back yeah, it's back when I was at Midway Deer Processing and I would work all week dragging these bloody deer carcasses around during deer season and I go up to George and say, George case Friday, I wanna go out tonight, can I get paid? And he'd go over to the register and he'd pull out a wad of money and he'd count it out and And that's what I earned. All my work got me that. And the frame here is blessed is he who pays you back for what you've earned, who pays pays you for your wage. 
Right. This isn't, this isn't, this is, this is funny. This is about to be fun. You want a song? We're going to give you a song. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the, the whole punchline of the entire thing is verse nine. All right, read it. <laughs> okay. So Ashray Sheyo Hez Venifets, Venifets, sorry. Et Olalech. No, let's try that one again. Et Olal Laich El Hasala. Hasala. Yeah, a couple Good. things with the dogish there. So, yeah, so that last one, that dogish is doubled. So it's Hasala. Right. And also, this is a Bagad Kafat in the Nifets. Oh, so the that's Nifets. Nifets. Yeah. yeah Cool. Verbs. Um, no. That, what we were just talking about is a PL. Huh. Well, yeah, but come on. You got a verb before that. We, what have we seen this pattern of she plus verb? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. I, I That's a new word for me. I've never seen it, so... Uh, it's a, almost it's almost like a different way to to treat something like a participle. I mean, it's technically you're making a relative pronoun phrase because you know a share who which of that right shares a pocketed form. So the one who and generally this this is almost a different way to do a substantival participle. But instead of making the verb into a participle, we'll just slap a share on the front and do your regular imperfect form. So it's easy. Okay, so it's then the one who does whatever this verb is. Yeah, and we let's just parse it real quick. You see, there's a yod up front, right? So it's a cal imperfect, and it's a three ms because there's nothing else from uh, achaz. Yeah, achaz. If we just look it up real quick, if that's not in your vocab, hold, seize, grasp. So the one who hold. seizes. Yeah, the one who grabs, the one who who holds, the one who seizes. Veni pets. So this one they have, because I didn't know, they have a PAL 3MS. Yeah, that's easy though. EA and there's doubling in the middle. Right. Yeah, technically, uh, I mean, not technically, I mean, this is a ve catal. It's a ve plus a perfect verb. Right. So if we were reading a narrative, you might want to uh, take this as a future, but it's not narrative. And we have to remember this is inside the relative pronoun, the relative pronoun. So this is still inside the she. This is inside the who. Who is the one who's ashre she? Blessed is or happy is she, the one who. And this is still within that thought. So. Whenever we're looking at different verb, you know, why is this one imperfect? Why is this one perfect? The thing that matters is these are all in the same. Uh, if if you want to argue about tense, if you want to argue about aspect, if you want to argue about modality, these are all the same. These are all the same level, even though it's an imperfect. And even though this is a perfect, these are at the same level because this is inside the she. So blessed is the one who and these verbs are going to describe this who this this one who is blessed 
Okay, so the one who basically seizes and... Knee pets. What's knee pets? Dashes or smashes or breaks up. Yeah, smashes. And then... Et? Et olal... Yich. Ayich. So... Olalayich. The olalayich. Olalayich. Okay, cool. So that's, uh, I, I mean, I'm just gonna have to look that one up because I've, I've never seen Olal. Olal? Yeah, it's not, it's not, uh, calm. I mean, it doesn't happen frequently. Nahum, look Psalms. At, in Lamentations. Yeah. In the verse, should women eat their offspring? You know? So it has more to do with babies, it looks like, because it's nursing infant in Lamentations. Babies. Yeah, this is almost like <clears throat> infants. Infants, maybe newborns. This is like these are tiny babies. So Ashray, the one who grabs and smashes your infants. babies, infants, L toward or on or in or. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then the crags, the cliffs or the rocks. Sela, sala. What you got there? Rock or rocks. crags. All right. Cliffs. Eight and nine together. These. This is addressed to who? Yahweh. Nope. Oh, no, I'm sorry. This one's addressed to the daughter of Babylon. Is it daughter of Babylon or is it daughter Babylon? I'm going to say daughter of. Yeah, I disagree. Um, and it's not that big of a deal, but I think this is a, uh, a kind of play on Bat Zion, where most, most time you get this Bat talking about daughter Zion. And a lot of people say daughter of Zion, but they're they're talking about the city in terms of a daughter in relation to Yahweh. Um, here, they're now going to talk about Babylon as a daughter. So I think in English, we wouldn't say daughter of. We would just say daughter Babylon. And it's talking about uh, Babylon in this in this feminine daughter way that's about to get beat up and not just beat up, but beat up in a way that is uniquely is, is unique to females. And I, I don't mean, I mean, obviously babies can be, um, male, male or female or, uh, something else. As I recently learned on the Bible for normal people podcast, <laughs> um, which is what, um, eunuchs are sometimes about in the Hebrew Bible, which is very interesting. But um, this is this is gendered language using a female image for a city, and then talking about taking the the babies of those cities. And as we just saw in Hallett, this isn't just babies. This is infants. These are newborns. These are these are these are babies that are with their mama. When this uh were this this noun. 
is also used, olau is not just used of humans. It is also used of animal babies. And it's most of the time talking about those that are still nursing uh, with their mom. So it is daughter Babylon about to be destroyed or the destroyed one. Blessed is the one who pays you for what you worked so hard for, what you what you paid us with. Bless the one who pays you for what you did to us, what you paid us. Blessed is the one who holds, who seizes. So that seize there, that seize, I think a lot of times people imagine grabbing a baby by a heel and 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 smashing it on a rock. But I think what it means by that is is kidnapping it from its mother. Because this is not just a child we're talking about, but it's an olau. Right. And and the olau most of the time are breastfeeding. And if they're, you know, if they're animals, they're 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 nursing. But that's that's how you, this is a young young baby. So it is it's take it away from it's being able to to nurse, steal it, and smash it on the rocks. Paying back for what you paid us, giving you the same wage, giving you the same payment for what you paid to us, this is about war. This is about battle. This is about not wanting the next generation to do what the previous generation has done. Okay. This is, if we can, let's stop all these babies from being born and maybe this won't happen again. Or, you know, definitely there's revenge and, and all that, but, but, but the, the, the logic of this here is the, the exile and the war that, that led to the exile. Uh, Alan says the barbarous practice referred to in verse nine was a feature of ancient Near Eastern warfare. One may compare the statement of Nahum three ten. Uh, Nahum three ten says, "Yet she became an exile. She went into, into captivity. Even her infants were dashed into pieces." And the oracles of Isaiah thirteen sixteen. Uh, this is against Babylon, this verse Isaiah 13, 16 is spoken against Babylon. Their infants will be dashed into pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered. Their wives ravished, which means raped. And Hosea 14, 1, uh, their little ones shall be dashed into pieces and pregnant women shall be ripped open. Also Hosea 13, 16 it effected total destruction by making war on the next generation. Although not uncommon, it aroused shock and horror, as uh, we see in 2 Kings 8.12. Um, and there's actually a conversation about such practices. And so the psalm here reaches an emotional climax. The note of retaliation obviously carries over from verse 8. Um, Steidel, Steidel, be Steidel, observed that the negative expression of an imminent positive love for Zion is displayed here. Edom Babylon is the 
antithesis to Zion, and so to Yahweh. So, is this the kind of ashray? You know, because we also get ashray. I believe it's Psalm one, right? Ashray, isn't that Psalm one? Or am I thinking Proverbs one? You know more than I do there. No, it's Psalm one. <laughs> ashray haish, asher lo halak sat reshaim. How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice, who does not sit or does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Ashrei, uh, happy, blessed, fortunate. You know, this is this is a blessing land. This is beatitude language. Happy is the one. Blessed is the one. Jesus says, this is how you're happy. Happy is the one who does this. Happy is the one who does this. And then Psalm 137. Happy is the one who does this. Happy is the one who pays you back for what you're going to get. Happy is the one who kidnaps your child and smashes it on the rock. And so obviously Jimmy Cliff does not sing this when he has a great reggae version of the first part of the song. Modest Yahoo does not sing this when he sings his Jerusalem uh, version of verses five and six. So should we sing it? Should should we should we should we read this? Should we be paying this verse attention? I think so. I mean, I think I don't know about singing it, <laughs> just because it's that's an odd phrase to be singing in any context. But well, somebody was singing it. But what I think it does, in a sense, is it it like, I mean, obviously, verse eight tells us, okay, this happened to us, so let let it happen to them. I think it's more that like literary revenge that Israel tends to do in a lot of their writing. Yeah. Well, but the issue is that there's a number of people who assume that if something is in the Bible, then that means it's what we're supposed to do. And so some people would say that this is a place where the Bible justifies violence. Well, and, and here it's grotesque violence. It's not just, uh, you know, let's argue about uh, pacifism or, you know, just war theory or something. But even even in a just war theory, this is not just. Well, no, the, but it's payback. It's not action. Like, it, it, it's not saying, hey, go do this to them out of nothing. It's saying, go do this to them because they did it to us. Mm. You know, so it's it's still that eye for eye, life for life mentality that's been set up in Exodus and and it's it's still kind of their code of ethic being played out in their song. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's to me it like it lends more to like even though you just read something that said this was a common practice in ancient Near Eastern warfare, it lends some credibility to the fact that this probably happened to Israel. And why it's so, like, if we're going to get Christological, why it's so offensive that Jesus says, love your enemies. You know, because this is in the background of love your enemies. It's not just, like, this is a psalm they're going to know. Right. You know, so it's it's not just, oh, hey, love that guy next door to you that's competing for the same job as you. It's love those people who bashed your infants against the rocks. You know, so it's, I you know, and we don't got to go there theologically all the time dog think, we're there we're there we're but here. i think it helps Let's be here for a minute i think it helps i think it helps us see that that 
statement of Jesus in a new light where it's not just this, oh yeah, well, they're my enemy, but they're the same color as me and next door. You know, that's not what enemy means in this context. It's, it's something way, way, way worse. Right. Right. Well, and uh, I think not only can we take the, take, you know, loving our enemies as, as a, a, a way to understand this as this is in the history of Israel. This is in the, 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 the big theology book of Israel. Um, not only that, and oh, now we must love our enemies because Jesus said so. But I think there's something to be said about the Olau and, and Jesus as an Olau. Right. And uh, we just finished Christmas where Jesus was in Olau and we celebrated uh, that one Olau uh, being born. And we celebrate the, you know, I don't want to get all preachy and, you know, we're, we're, I feel like we should just get back to parsing some verbs or something, but no, we're at the end of the chapter. We can be preaching now, <laughs> but, uh, but Jesus, the, 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 the life and the, the death and the resurrection and the new life of Jesus is about, as, as you just said, is, is making peace with enemies. And it's not simply, a lesson about making peace with enemies, but it is a child who was beaten up. Yeah. And we remember him as the son of God and it is God's child not getting dashed on a rock, but certainly, certainly getting first century equivalent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, this isn't smashing a baby on a rock, but this is uh taking, a grown man child and torturing him and beating him up and stabbing him in the side and torturing him on a cross while his mom watches. Right. You know, I mean, and instead of, instead of pay them back, it's forgive them. Well, yeah, but I think it's interesting because we've get that sense of Shalom of, uh, we, we, there's still that Shalom here because Shalom is really, really big. Yeah. Shalom actually does cover all this financial transactional type of stuff. And I'm not one that takes all transaction out of, uh, you know, when we start talking about atonement, I just think the transaction is different. I think the, I think it's, it's certainly, it was, it was people who are demanding some kind of transaction. And I think we've already, you know, you and me have talked about Gerard enough where, right. Um, that's, that's what a mob wants. They want, they want payment. Right. And okay. You can get payment. Class action. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you can get payment, but this is this is a new kind of repayment. This is a new kind of repayment of uh, uh, snatching up a baby, and how is that baby's death going to repay the people? And the people who killed the baby, did that repayment get them what they thought it was going to get them? So there are some really really fun i guess uh i should be more mystical trying to read uh hebrew this way i'm i'm sure there's some charismatic folks that would probably get down on this more than me so uh, 
but I think I no, but I mean, really, whenever we talk about reading the Old Testament Christologically, I don't think it simply means is this a good picture like we learn about Jesus in the New Testament? And if right. it's not, that means it's wrong. That's well, actually a kind of Marcionism, and I don't care if people get upset about that. Well, well, and they tend to dismiss things that don't hey, – well, this doesn't look like Jesus, so we can just dismiss that. Well, that's – yeah, that's what I mean is they yeah. have a method now, and they call it a Christological reading, and they say this doesn't look like Jesus, so it must be wrong, and so it's it's somehow less than. Right. It's not as meaningful. It's not as important as the Jesus parts of the Bible. And I think that is not actually a Christological reading. That's no. they should stop calling that Christological. That's that's a that's a that is a neo Marcionite way of reading where you're right. just you're a little more sophisticated on how you strip away text. Good for you. <laughs> Preach it. But a Christological reading is 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 actually I don't think it's it's reading the Bible trying to imagine how Jesus would read things. Um uh, or or saying, do I think this squares with my image of Jesus as if we're going to be 100% right about that? But rather, I think it means in those places, and it's not going to be every single one of them. It's kind of like when people you know, misuse mimetic theory by over-applying it, and they start looking for mimesis every little, in every little nook and cranny, and sometimes right. that's just not what's salient. Right. So in the Old Testament, a lot of times, not every single time, sometimes they're just telling a story and sometimes they're just saying this king owned this much stuff and that's all there is to it. But a lot of times there are um, – there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a what as a Christian I could call a foreshadowing and there is a, a typology that is going to be presented and sometimes it is presented in a negative way. And it doesn't mean I'm supposed to reject it as negative. But rather, it's I need to understand this context because the negative matters. Yeah. You know, we want to take out the violence of the Bible as if that's going to make it more relevant. This we're in a very, very violent, violent world. Taking violence out of the Bible will actually make it less relevant. Right. We need to understand the violence, understand it contextually and understand what this is doing in that context. Now, I'm not also saying there's a and there's a right, a good criticism that many people will bring that. Sometimes what we try to do when we start talking about the context of violence in the Old Testament is just to contextualize it into being okay. And that, well, if you understand the context, then you'll know that this kind of violence wasn't as bad as the, you know, the Israelite kind of violence wasn't as bad as the Edomite kind of violence. So even right. though it was bad, it's not as bad. So this is good. And, and I think we're, we're right today to condemn slavery all the time in the old Testament and the new Testament in American history and anybody's history. Slavery is wrong all the time. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't read uh, the parts of the Bible or like when Paul is, you know, telling slaves to be good slaves and, and tell my kids that that means slavery is okay. Right. I, 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 and we rightly say, no, this, this part actually doesn't apply apply to you <laughs> because you don't live in a culture with slavery. Right. You know, and it's a good thing. And if you did, let's get out of it, you know, and let's get, and I'm not, 
Anyway, I guess we need to do a whole big thing on hermeneutics and, and culture and, and all Sanitization. That. But, well, but the, the point is, is that when we talk about something being in a context, that's not a way to wash over it and make it okay and say, see, you must just wholeheartedly accept the Bible as it is. Because in the if you just understood the context, it would be okay. No, you should understand the context. And sometimes the context is terrible and it's horrific and it's really, really violent. And you, sh- and you should be upset at it and it should – piss you off and you're not supposed to like it but that's what you're supposed to understand because this is what reality is this is this and then when we start talking about jesus in this world this is what this is where healing and reconciliation and love for the enemy comes in and that only that that addresses terrible violent situations where there's been a lot of deaths and babies have been killed and yeah well and love of enemies doesn't really like carry any weight when when you you present enemy as american neighbor rather than roman occupant right so right right yeah yeah that's a good point i think a lot of times maybe now people have uh downgraded uh enemy as and now enemies are just their competitors right and they don't really have enemies or, or other denominations. Have, yeah. Or if they have enemies, the enemies are so other. There's no way that they could ever be brought into some kind of relationship with them because they're, they're terrorists. Right. They're evil. They must be destroyed. All I'm saying is that what, what, what we've just been talking about and what we see here. In Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9, I know we just parsed it. We did the grammar. We did the syntax. I know exactly what it says. I know exactly what it says. And I also know what we are supposed to learn from this is actually enemy love. Right. That place of pain where you've suffered so much that now you want to start talking about killing babies as a strategy this is this is what enemy love is for. This is what the gospel is for. This is what Jesus is for as that baby who was smashed, who was killed and and now is going to repay us for something that he's done actually instead of what we've done. And so now there's now there's an opportunity to join into that new life rather than continue back and forth back and forth with the baby bashing which will never end if you if you just keep on right well i think we've preached enough <laughs> amen brother <laughs> uh and i guess we got to figure out something else to read next unless we're going to keep doing assorted psalms i'm up for anything all right well i guess we'll figure it out and we'll get to it next time mm-hmm.